We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening again. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to finish up one thing regarding the fruitless fig tree from last time. Uh, excellent illustration, remember, we said of the fruitlessness that the Lord Jesus found in the nation of Israel at the time that he went into the temple, into the city of Jerusalem, rather, and then into the temple and had to clean it out because it had been made a den of thieves and a house of merchandise instead of a house of prayer for all nations. And so the Lord used a fig tree to illustrate to the disciples the, uh, the fruitlessness of Israel and also how it was going to be cursed and dried up. And uh, it has indeed been dried up for many a year as far as the program of God is concerned. Um, Matthew chapter 21, where we saw the fig tree, has a parallel passage in Mark 11. And so I, I told you to turn to Matthew you can stay there if you want, but you can also uh, turn to Mark 11, if you please, and uh, just briefly look here. I'm only going to mention this briefly because we have dealt with this recently before. And uh, in, in this parallel passage, the Lord uh, curses the fig tree, it withers, he tells about the lesson of it, and then he says in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, so he's going to augment the lesson. We don't have this recorded for us in this location in Matthew, but in here in Mark we do. Mark 11:25. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, and your father that your father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So as I said, we've already looked at this notion of forgiveness. And uh, But it comes here in this context of prayer, which the Lord was teaching them about asking God for things like withered fig trees, that God would answer their prayer if they had faith uh, like a, a small seed, uh, just a small amount of faith. And so uh, Jesus speaks about praying and forgiving. He envisions a situation where you're praying to God, and if at that time you realize you're holding something against someone, you need to forgive them right away. You listen to the work of the Spirit of God in your heart right now. If you're praying and you have got something against somebody, you need to forgive them. Uh, this is just plain old, I mean, this is like 101 Bible teaching. You can't be sitting there praying and holding in your heart, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, tell me the word animosity, anger, uh, upsetness, um, you know, uh, thinking evil thoughts of a brother or sister or whatever. You can't have that stuff in your heart. You need to forgive. Once that is done, the way is clear, so to speak, for God to offer forgiveness for you. So, you, you know, you're going to God and saying, God, I confess my sin. Please cleanse me and forgive me. But you're holding back against another brother. What do you expect? What do you expect? I mean, that itself is a sinful attitude to 
be holding back a forgiveness from your your brother and, and wanting to harbor that. Harbor, that's a kind of word that I was thinking of too, harboring that in your heart. You uh, need to get yourself ready to be reconciled to that person. You know, this is your side of forgiveness. Now, you, you know, hopefully you can get everything straightened out with that brother, you know, when you go and speak to them, but you must be uh, ready to forgive. Speak about your disposition toward that brother and if that's necessary, and then to be fully reconciled to that person. But if you do not forgive, then God will not forgive you. In other words, if you cannot forgive someone else, how in the world can you expect God to be pleased with you? God who has exercised such magnanimous forgiveness toward you. Now, at this point, I know that we all get tangled up in a conversation about works-based salvation or non-works-based salvation. And somebody will say, you know, Pastor, it sounds to me like you're saying we have to forgive if we're going to be able to be saved. Well, I'm just reading the text as it stands. This is what the Lord said. And we know, uh, you know, for believers that stand before God in prayer, if you're being hard-hearted and not forgiving someone, then you should already realize in your heart that you need to forgive others before you can ask God to forgive you. And, and often we are like that. And I say we're, I'm not going to get tangled up in this argument over works-based salvation because we know salvation is not based on works. It's, it's ridiculous to, to go there. It's absolutely not based on works. Uh, it's based on faith, by actually based on God's grace through faith. And so, but it's evidenced by these kinds of things like our disposition of forgiveness. And if we're holding a disposition of unforgiveness and yet hoping God to forgive us, uh, it's quite inconsistent. So if you never have an attitude of forgiveness toward others, then you should be able to figure out where you stand with God, and that's not a good place. If you have a very hard time forgiving, cannot let things go, or always... Uh, going back to things in your mind or events of the past that still bother you, then you have a major problem. Just mark it. If you, let me say that again. Uh, if you have a, this is written in my notes here, okay, so you know I'm not making this up uh, just on the spot. If you have a very hard time being forgiving, you cannot let things go, you're always going back in your mind to events of the past that still bother you, then you have a major problem. How can you expect your prayers to be heard while you harden your heart about these matters. I wrote this, well, for last week's message and a week and a half or whatever ago. I'm just re rehearsing it with you tonight because I wanted to finish this portion of the text of Scripture. So we saw that the barren fig tree reminded us that we need to have a fruitful life so as to have a good judgment before God. Our prayers can be powerful, but they have to come from a righteous and forgiving life. You know, when the Lord said, uh, you could say the same thing to this fig tree, or you could say to this fig tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, or you could say to this mountain, be moved from here. Uh, the assumption inbuilt in into that is that you're praying fervently, you're praying righteously, you're praying forgivingly, uh, you're forgiving toward others as you do that. Otherwise, God just won't hear those prayers. So that's a little conclusion to last week's message. I want to take us back, however, to Matthew 21, starting in verse 28 now. Matthew 21, 28, and look at the parable of the two 
sons. We'll just follow that title in my Bible, the parable of the two sons. <clears throat> but actually, my title in my notes is this, Empty Talk versus Real Repentance. Empty Talk versus Real Repentance. Let me read 21, 28. Matthew 21, 28. But what do you think? Now remember, this follows right along with what the Lord uh, was uh, sharing with them about his authority. Now this section here is what we dealt with on Sunday. You know, we, he talked about you know, the authority of, of John the Baptist, where'd it come from? They asked him a question, where's your authority from? They wouldn't, they wouldn't answer his question. He didn't answer their question. We learned you know, what their thoughts were. They feared man and, and all of that. And um, so uh, this authority question is kind of hanging in the air. And they had not listened to John the Baptist. And so Jesus starts out, verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in my vineyard. Now the father is the authority figure here. He answered and said, I will not, this first son. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second, the father came to the second son and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. Very, very nice, you know, I go, sir. But he did not go. Jesus concludes with this question, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Well, this is a short little story. It's only, what, two, four, five verses. And yet, it's extremely powerful. The religious leaders would not say who authorized John's baptism, heaven or men. They feared people. They did not fear God. They would not answer Jesus' question. John's call for repentance was very clear. And at least some of the number of the Pharisees knew that they needed that. We know two of them. One was named Nicodemus. The other was Joseph of Arimathea, both influential uh, men in the Jewish community. John 19, 38 and 39 tells us Nicodemus believed in him. Joseph of Arimathea did secretly because of the, he you know, was going to be persecuted by the Jewish people. They were disciples. The Bible seems to make it clear Joseph was a disciple despite that kind of secretiveness about it. And they were the ones that went and got Jesus' body and, and prepared it for burial and put it in the tomb. But these hard-hearted religious leaders who were trying to trap Jesus in his words had no interest to repent of anything. So the Lord told a story to illustrate an important point. Let me just mention this. The Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they didn't think they needed repentance. They thought they were great. They had this idea in their mind that they were okay. And Jesus comes and before him, John the Baptist, and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've got all this rot in your spiritual life. And they didn't realize it because they were darkened to it, but the, the Lord has been sent, Jesus, John the Baptist has been sent, just like uh, Jonah was sent to Nineveh, remember? And the mercy of God was he preached, repent, 
because the axe is laid to the root of the trees and the trees are about to be chopped down and cast into the fire. These people thought they needed no repentance, but they desperately did need repentance. Look at where their attitude led them. They thought we're so good and righteous, and yet they condemn an innocent man to die, turn him over to the Romans, get him killed, and they're happy about it. Then they want to cover it up. Righteousness? No need for forgiveness? You just watch that attitude when you say, I don't need any repentance. It can lead you in very bad ways, to bad places like it did them. Well, the story is straightforward here. The Lord is trying to teach these folks that they do need to repent. Um, A man goes to each of his two sons and tells them to work in his vineyard. The assumption is that a father is or has authority to expect his sons to work as they're told. For a son to disobey was out of step with the commands in the law. Uh, Obey your parents. These kids... VBS are memorizing Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. You've probably heard some of them say it, haven't you? Yeah, a goodly number. Uh, And honor your father and mother. Instruction from the law, Ephesians and, and Exodus 20. So he expected and had the right to expect them to be obedient to him. They were in his household. They were his sons. The meat of the story comes in the son's two different responses. The first son said that he would not go to do the work. Immediately, he rebelled against the father, and he refused to do what he was told. And that was a sin. Let's just be clear, that was a sin. Even though he later went and did it, he had a sin for which he should have apologized to his dad. However, he evidently thought about it for a bit and regretted what he said and went anyway to the work in the vineyard. Now, the work, I'm sorry, the word here for regret is not the same as the word for repent. Uh, I remember Dr. Sachs often saying this and uh, I think maybe making a little bit too much of the distinction between the words. Metamelomai is the word here. Metanoeo is the other word. Sometimes they mean different things. Repent, the true response of a soul to God, and regret, like, you know, well, I got caught, or shouldn't have done that, oops, mistake. But sometimes the the meaning of regret kind of melds over into the meaning for repent, and that's really what's happening here. We're in the context of the book of Matthew, the call to repent, um, and the, the idea here just seems to be clear to me to be true repentance. And so he changed his mind and he changed his ways. And so that's true repentance, right? The second son received his father's request kindly enough and affirmed that he would go and work. He even says, sir, in his answer. Yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, But in fact, he did not go to the work. We would like to imagine that his conscience bothered him that day or the next few days as he thought, you know, my dad told me and I said I would, but then I didn't. But it may not, that is, his conscience may not have bothered him at all. He may have lied and just wasn't bothered by it. Have you known people that are like that? Have you realized of yourself that you were or have been like that from time to time? 
because your conscience has been stuffed down into the lowest corner of your heart and covered over with a bunch of debris so that it's not it's calling out but you're not hearing it or your ears are stopped up and your mind is dull to the work of the conscience you don't think you need any repentance because <laughs> you're so good you think well, then the Lord asks an embarrassingly simple question. Who did the will of his Father? It doesn't get any easier than that. The answer is clear. The one who did the will of the Father is the one who did the will of the Father. Not the one who talked that he would do it, but the one who actually did it. Mere talk is meaningless. I want you to notice, too, um, you know, we didn't need the Lord to even ask the question or, or, or have the answer written here from the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes, teachers of the law. When they said the first, they just answered, obviously, it's the first one who did it, even though he said he wouldn't initially. But notice that the delay because of a bad attitude did not permanently disqualify the first brother. Yeah, he had a delay yeah, he had a bad attitude. Yes, he had a sin. But you know what? He still did the will of God. That is commendable. He was commended as the one who did the will of the Father despite the initial disobedience. And the reason I say that is because sometimes I've, I've witnessed to people like this or they've testified this of me. Look, I'm, I'm too far gone. I'm, I've, I've, I've sinned. God's never going to take me. Well, you and yes, yes, you sinned. I'll agree with you there. And initially you've said no to God, but that doesn't have to continue. You can say, yes, I will do what God wants me to do. So don't think that an initial delay or an initial, see, sometimes people lock themselves out of the grace of God. And this is a technique I think that the devil uses and that the flesh uses to just say, ah, oh, fooey on the whole thing, I'm done, I'm washed up, finished. What that does is it keeps people away from God's grace instead of allowing them to challenge themselves to think, oh, actually, I could, I still could, God would receive me, and not allow an easy kind of excuse to keep them away from responding to the gospel. So the religious leaders answered correctly. Even they could not get this one wrong. They weren't that dumb. But what they ended up doing was condemning themselves. They were ones who offered a lot of God talk, but not a lot of God action. So what's the lesson here? The self-condemnation I just mentioned of the chief priests and elders, is that apparent to you, Why, how they condemn themselves in their answer? I take it that it goes like this. They professed to be followers of God, but when God called them through John the Baptist to repent and obey, go to my vineyard, they didn't do it. The Father spoke through John the Baptist and they ignored it. They did not believe John initially. And after God gave them more time, they still didn't believe him. They, they didn't regret it. They didn't believe John's message. They didn't go to, quote, work in the vineyard. In other words, to repent and believe the good news of the Messiah. 
I doubt if their consciences were active enough to bother them on this count. They should have repented right then and there in dust and ashes before the Lord. I mean, when the Lord says that these people were like whited or whitewashed sepulchers, you know that. They're outside, they look nice. The mausoleum is very nicely decorated, but inside, what is it full of? Dead men's bones, rot, moral filth, nasty stuff. These people were adulterers at heart, if not adulterers in physical action. They were idolaters. They were proud. They were greedy, covetous. They broke many of the laws of God behind the scenes, but looked like they were religious on the outside. Hmm. So they really condemned themselves, even if they didn't realize it or not. They did realize it or not. On the other hand, the tax collectors and sinners earlier in their lives did not show proper respect for God. They were ones who said, God, I will not. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do my tax collecting. I'm going to do my harloting. I'm going to do my sinning. I'm going to do my idolatry, all of those things. I will. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. But later they believed John the Baptist and did repent. You know, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, Pharisees and leaders, but the tax collectors and harlots did believe him. They entered the kingdom of God before the chief priests and elders. Now, we read this and it's like, okay, well, that's obvious. We know that. My friends, you have to be like reading this with fresh eyes to realize that this is a shocking statement. There is no way on earth that a Pharisee would think in their works-based mindset that a tax collector or a prostitute would ever enter heaven at all, much less before them. This is a shock. This is a bombshell. This is so different than how they thought that they couldn't stand it. This is why they hated Jesus so much. Those sinners, tax collectors and harlots, who were despised by the establishment, followed John's way of righteousness. This, I think, is easy to overlook as you read it, too. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You can kind of overlook that because you're immersed in the story and you're kind of, you know, exercised about the storyline. The way of righteousness that John was preaching to them was righteousness imputed by God through grace. That's the only kind of saving righteousness that there is. Demonstrated, or or actually, it's by God's grace through faith, and it's demonstrated by what key behavior in the life of a person? Repentance. John said, repent. He was preaching a message of righteousness, which repentance was the human side of the response of that. Because of this, the, 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 the tax collectors who believed him and repented and the uh, harlots and the sinners had a righteousness from God, which was a saving righteousness. And listen, this is interesting. Remember in Matthew 5.20 when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Here the Lord is saying, they had that righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
they had a scribe and Pharisee exceeding righteousness and entered the kingdom before them. So when you, know, when you look at, say, Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Or 5.20, like I just quoted, that you're, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You and I, by faith in Christ, have that righteousness that exceeds because it's the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, when the Lord says, and that's, by the way, that's just a great encouragement to me, a sinner can have the righteousness of God in Christ and enter the kingdom. Tremendous. Um, The harlots and the tax collectors enter the kingdom of God before you, he says. Now, the before is not meant to suggest that the Pharisees will eventually make it at some later time. They will not make it at all unless they repent because there are two places. There's the kingdom of heaven and the eternal continuance of that, and then there is the place where there's outer darkness, where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth, regret, where there's an absence of God's grace in the far future. The parable illustrates that believing the message of God is demonstrated by going. Go to my vineyard. One son says, I will not go, but then he went. The other son says, I will go, but then he didn't go. So going in the parable is the repenting, is the believing. Unbelief is expressed by not going. Belief is expressed by going, by repenting, by believing. Uh, and, And that respect for authority that induces you to move. Do you respect God's authority enough to listen to him? God commands all men everywhere to repent. Are you going to obey that command? Or are you going to sit there like a bump on a log and say, "Mm mm-mm, not me. God can leave me alone. Um, I'll make my own decisions or whatever. Uh, Hopefully your respect for the authority of God will induce you to move, to go. In contrast, the professed religiosity of the Jewish leadership was meaningless. They drew near to God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Again, I emphasize this one thought that I've alluded to earlier. Notice that it is the end outcome, the big picture, not the potholes along the way that decide whether a person obeyed or not. The pothole for the first son was he said no. He had a bad attitude. He refused. He disobeyed. But he got through that pothole and got down the road to where he needed to be. The second son pretended that he was just on the smooth road of obedience the whole time, and he was on the wrong road. He was on the road to destruction, the the broad road. In the story also, the father exercised patience toward the first son. He didn't immediately go and whack him for not going to uh, do the work. He was very patient. And, and the Father in heaven exercises patient toward, patience toward us too, doesn't he? The, the parable illustrates the great patience of God. He knows that we're sinners. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're bound by the flesh. He knows that we'll say no when we ought to say yes. He knows that we'll disobey when we ought to obey sometimes. And yet, well, I think of an example like Abraham. 
Abraham, it says in Hebrews, his faith did not waver. Now, you'd be scratching your head for a while and looking back in, in Genesis and saying, it seems to me, like he had a few bumps in the road, and he did. But in the end, after he got kind of straightened out, you know what I mean? You know the initial shock of you're going to have a son and Sarah's laughing and all of this sort of stuff. And, and then they finally probably sat down and said, you know, God just promised us we're going to have a kid, a boy, to carry on the promise. We've got to believe him, Sarah. And Sarah's like, that's right, Abram. We've got to believe him. And so they had this strong faith, even though they had a few potholes, as I called them, or speed bumps along the way. So this illustrates the great patience of God, and the conclusion of the matter is that somebody has great faith. You know, you, you might say, well, I wasted the first half of my life in sin. Yeah, but how did you end the second half of your life? In faith, without doubting, and strength, and walking with the Lord? That's what God wants to see. God has an open call for people to obey him. He publishes that call in the word of God, right? You with me? And the human conscience. You know what's right and wrong in here, at least some basics. He shows of himself in the creation and explains the rest of his word, of, of his gospel through the word, and, and through his people. We share that with others. And so God has this open call to go to his vineyard and work. And the question is now, are you going to obey his call even if initially you've said, no, I won't? You can. The door is open for you to obey that call. What a rich parable here. The Lord used it to invite the religious leaders to think. Verse 28, but what do you think? What do you think? What do you think about this? We should think as well. In just a few Verses, a few lines, we're brought into a very deep theological matter of talk versus walk, of profession versus possession, of no repentance versus real repentance, of the Father's patience toward all humanity, and of the way of righteousness. Boy, there's a lot there in just five verses, isn't there? a lot alluded to in the scriptures. And the Lord is trying to teach that to his disciples, trying to get the attention of some of the Pharisees. And it's put there in the book for our learning. And I trust that we will take its lessons very well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how we are grateful to you for the privilege of looking into the word and seeing the way of the two sons. And I pray for each person under the sound of these words online, in person, on the recording, on the website later. Anybody hearing this will be face-to-face -face with your call to repent and to listen to the Word of God and to say, not just to say, I go, sir, or I'm fine with God, but rather to say, I've messed up. I need to get on track with God, repent of sin, change the mind, move in the direction God wants them to move and make a change in their life. May your spirit do that work in us by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends, we come to the end of our Wednesday evening Bible study. Prayer time, thank you for joining us. Uh, pray for us and uh, pray for one another.
We have some more days of vacation, Bible school ministry, and uh, lots of good stuff going on here. If uh, you want, come along and just observe for a little while tomorrow or Friday and see how things are. God bless you and keep you. Amen.